0: Welcome to episode 158 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest is the culture writer Brandon Stresning, whose work has appeared in Vulture, Pangoria, and GQ. He's an action movie aficionado. Joining me from Pittsburgh, Brandon, welcome to Junk Filter. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to finally
1: be doing this and talking about someone who definitely deserves to be talked about.
0: <laughs> well, you got me going. You recently saw Outland for the first time, and you tweeted about how much you loved it. So I waded into your replies to uh, strongly hint that I would love to have you on the show to talk about it. And I also got more excited when I found out you'd never seen another Hyams joint, his sequel to Kubrick's 2001.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he... He's a director who I, I sort of grew up on just because, you know, Pittsburgh, uh, we, we all love sudden death here. If you talk to somebody a certain age in Pittsburgh, they'll, they'll all tell you that they were an extra in sudden death. Um, and and I just, so I grew up on that and, you know, uh, Time Cop, you know, just kind of like the, the t- uh, well, uh, yeah, the TNT movies and everything, laying on the couch on on the weekends and just watching movies with like commercial breaks. And so mm-hmm. I always kind of knew of Peter Himes, not when I was a kid, obviously, but as I got older, uh, and I was more of a fan of his sons actually, with you know the Universal Soldier movies and everything. But for whatever reason, I bought Outland recently and threw it on, and was just so blown away by just how great it was. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, I we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit here, but it it really just sent me down this whole rabbit hole of you know watching his earlier work and realizing he's one of our best craftsmen and it's just a shame that we don't we don't talk about him in the same breath as a lot of the other people because I guess he sort of has that journeyman tag which is maybe a little apt but maybe a little unfair I think I, I think he's a
0: lot more than that. Yeah, I would say that he's an auteur, even if he might uh, roll his eyes at the, at the suggestion of that. But his films, um, they all have a signature look. They have a signature style to the dialogue. And he's displayed an incredible range in his work from science fiction. Like we're talking about four of his sci fi movies, they're all good. They're not like Outland is great. And Capricorn One is pretty great, too. But he's not thought of as somebody along the lines of Ridley Scott or John Carpenter or even Brian De Palma. Uh, Maybe it all boils down to him never having a gigantic blockbuster hit, but he's an extremely influential filmmaker. And I would even say that Outland, as much as it's related to the Alien movies in terms of its vibes and its style, I think it was a huge influence on James Cameron's sequel to Alien.
1: Oh, I think so, too, especially with the whole, you know, blue collared aspect of the crew and everything, you know, a lot of people talk about how Ridley's alien has that, and it does. I mean you of course you have Harry Dean Stanton. He he embodies that better than anybody. But I think Cameron's has that even more. And I think most of Cameron's filmography, I think, has a lot of you know, as as you go into the Abyss and uh in and, and you know the the modern day crew in Titanic, there's like this blue collar, you know, everyday guy kind of vibe to all the crews and that that that's in present in every single one of uh, Peter Hyams' movies here. And, mm-hmm. and I think another thing that sort of ties those two together, it's interesting you brought that up because I was thinking about this the other day, uh, Cameron for as action oriented as he is and bombastic as he is, I think is a very, I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree with this is a pretty liberal minded filmmaker. And it's interesting watching Peter Hyams' movies because his are all sort of like that too. And, I I, th- I thought of that last year when I watched um, Busting for the first time, uh, the buddy cop movie. Uh, I had never seen that one. And I, and I think that's his first movie. I can't remember, though. Yeah, it's his first feature. Yeah, yeah. And watching that, I, you know, I was expecting just like a fun buddy cop movie from the 70s, very violent. I got all of that. But by the end, I was like, wow, this is like shockingly liberal it's very anti-police for being a police but and and then you watch his sci-fi work and you're just like wow he is he he has a lot to say here which i think does make him more of an auteur than i think you know a lot of people would say including him like you said <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: well this is a quote from hiem's uh, an, an example of a sort of self-effacing attitude. He uh, he said, I've said many times, some people have AFI Lifetime Achievement Awards. Some people have multiple Oscars. My bit of trivia is that I've made films with two leading men who were subsequently tried for the first degree murder of their wives. <laughs> <I> <laughs> with love Robert that. Blake and Busting, and then of course, O.J. Simpson and <laughs> Capricorn One. <laughs> I just did a show about- OJ Made in America and Peter Hyams is in it uh, a fair bit talking about his uh, relationship with OJ, which was forced on him by the studio because he wanted Bernie Casey to play the black astronaut in Capricorn One. And the studio wanted OJ Simpson, who, of course, was a pitch man and a celebrity. So he took him even though he didn't want him, but then they became friends. And in fact, Hyams even visited OJ in prison when he was arrested for the murders. Um, And Hyams also mentioned that once O.J. was found not guilty and was back out on the street, Hyams, like many people in Hollywood, sort of walked away from him. They had a sort of social run in where they were like pretending to be sort of pleasant to each other and just knowing that they were never going to see each other again. Oh, yeah. Like,
1: I I don't know how you would navigate that kind of friendship, but, you
0: know, because it was someone who was so obviously guilty. It's just it's kind of scary. And. Well, oh. and, and it freaked out Hyams too, because he believed OJ when OJ said to him, I didn't do it. Like he told him that when he visited him in jail. Uh, so Hyams felt kind of betrayed.
1: Oh, well, yeah. And then in, and as you go along, like, you know, you see him show up on Twitter now and everything. It's just he's really leaned into the idea that he's defi- that he's definitely, you know, guilty of it. And it's almost like he's having fun with it. It's mm-hmm. very, very bizarre culture we live in where that's yeah. possible. Where, But yeah, but. Uh, yeah, but but he's he I'll say this for being uh, foisted upon Hyams for capricorn one he he's shot like a star. If you didn't know any better, you would think like this is one of our great leading men. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about Peter Hyams and where he fits in. I don't think most people think of Hyams as a great sci-fi filmmaker, but there's no arguing with the fact that. The films we're talking about today, Capricorn 1, Outland, 2010, and Time Cop, are all highly watchable sci-fi movies, if not masterpieces. But kind of like Ridley Scott, like how Ridley started with Alien and Blade Runner and then took a long time to get back to science fiction, Hyams really staked a claim in the late 70s and early 80s as an American sci-fi filmmaker. But then he went off on this long streak through the 80s and into the 90s directing all kinds of movies across many genres, mostly thrillers, but, you know, wacky ones like Running Scared and then, you know, star vehicles like the Presidio and the Star Chamber. The only sort of bad Hyams movie from this whole period is Stay Tuned, his comedy with John Ritter. It's on Tubi if you want to watch it, but it's pretty deadly. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I i've seen bits and pieces of, of that one I, w- I love the concept of it but it just yeah it's it's pretty rough
0: well it's a, it's the concept is funny but it would be a great five or ten minute sketch as opposed to a feature film the idea that hell is actually a bunch of tv shows exactly yeah <laughs> but i would say what we could call peter hyams is a director of programmers I saw many of Haim's films for the first time on pay TV and cable, and I think there's something to be said about great filmmakers whose work almost benefits from commercial breaks and from sitting around watching it on your couch on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> like <laughs> movies can be great on that level too.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And and that's why I'm glad so many of his movies are, are available on Tubi. <laughs> um yeah. and it because it does kind of bring bring back that sort of feeling, you know, just Sitting around, you know, being able to uh, get up, go do something real quick in between the commercials—they they they have that 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 fit. But at the same time, they are extremely cinematic. Like you, you, I almost wish I could have seen these in a theater, especially the sci-fi ones, because they're Mm -hmm. just they're gorgeous movies. But but they do have that uh, that you know TNT Saturday afternoon movie (laughs) vibe to them, where the you know. Two hours is stretched to three and a half, four hours, and, and you have a whole day of just, you know, kind of zoning in and out and everything. It, they're, they're perfect for that.
0: Hyams <laughs> is unique among directors because he generally serves as his own cinematographer. And I have to say that he has a terrific eye for composition much of the time. He uses the widescreen canvas really nicely, and he puts people in dialogue scenes on opposite sides of the Cinemascope frame you know, he, he knows where to put the master and where to put the close up. I think that it's really only him and Steven Soderbergh who shoot their own movies. Although Soderbergh takes a pseudonym, Peter Andrews as his credit. And one funny thing about Hyams is that he did his own cinematography, but he was required by the studios and the American Society of Cinematographers to hire one for his union productions. But what he wound up doing was their job was more often than not to just stand there and observe while Hyams did the work. And then he gave them the credit as the cinematographer. <laughs> and I guess that kind of attitude towards the camera department uh, led to the ASC kind of hating Hayams. <laughs> um <laughs> They said you should join the American Society of Cinematographers if you want to be a cameraman, but they required him to move up the ranks. So they wanted Peter Hyams to start from the bottom as a loader (laughs) instead of doing what he actually already knew how to do. He was encouraged by no less than Conrad Hall and Haskell Wexler. Uh, to apply for the ASC, and they signed his application. They advocated for him, but his application was rejected two days later, and it was sent by registered mail, <laughs> so he would be <laughs> sure to receive it. <laughs> but eventually, he just said, fuck it, and uh, took his own credit as the director of photography. The first time that it's really under his name is on 2010. You, you
1: brought up that he he has an eye, and it's just, it's so true. He he knows how to place his stars in, in the frame that, that make them feel like movie stars. And, you know, there's just, there's images from all of these movies that I keep thinking of over and over again. I mean, uh, there's a great shot in Outland of Connery, uh, sitting, it's, it's a wide of his like, sort of, I guess it would have been, you know, his apartment in this weird little colony that he's in. And, uh, He's. It's after his family's left and everything, and he's sitting on this little bench, and it's he's off to the right of the shot, and it's just such a such a great shot. Now, he kind of reuses that again in twenty ten. That that uh, sort of same kind of shot, but this time it's when Roy Scheider is holding the Russian woman in his arms and together. Just I don't know why those two images really stood out to me. I just I, I really love open frames like that where you know someone's mm-hmm. just off to the side, you know, and it's very contemplative. Mm-hmm. And he just has such a great eye for what looks cinematic. And he also just has a great eye for accentuating his stars, which I was saying earlier. Um, there's a great one. You know, he, of course, you, you know, has a great shot of the splits in uh, in Time Cop. Very iconic one of those. Uh, it, It's just it's 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 really a shame that he's sort of been lost to time a bit because
0: He's one of our great image makers. Hyams is also one of those directors who can't watch his own work after it's done. I love when a f- filmmaker is definitely knows they're done their work when they can't stand to look at it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and he said that he had a traumatic experience when he attended the one of the first public screenings of Capricorn One. When Capricorn One opened, it was a big hit with lines around the block. He talked the staff at this busy screening to let him sneak in the back. He proved that he was the director. He wanted to see how the movie was playing. And he said that he felt nauseated because he kept seeing all the flaws of the movie and he couldn't stand it anymore and left. (laughs) (laughs) So now when he would attend a a film screening, he would just sit out in the lobby and listen to the audience response. But he said that uh, he can't bear to watch his own work. He doesn't look back.
1: I, I definitely get that. I, uh, you know, I'm not on the level of Peter Himes by any stretch of the imagination, but I can't listen to myself on podcasts. Okay. <laughs> I, so, so I do get it. But, but I think he's doing a little more important work. <laughs>
0: this is Capricorn control. All systems are go. They're looking for a reason to cancel the program. What if man's greatest
1: technological achievement never really happened? We found out two months ago. It won't work. What if the most important event in recent history was a multi-billion dollar fraud? What if someone found out? This is Capricorn One, rated PG.
0: So as we start to talk about these films that we're talking about today, I notice that they're all very related to each other. Capricorn One, Outland, and 2010, because Hyams is a former news guy. He worked for WBBM TV in Chicago as a news anchor. Sadly, I couldn't find any evidence of him anchoring the six o'clock news in the mid-60s. I would love to see that. But he worked for CBS from 1964 to 1970. He made several documentaries for the Chicago affiliate there. And he said that he got the idea for Capricorn One when the network was covering the moon landing. He got this idea when he saw that the whole thing was being uh, covered by one camera, that we were all watching it on TV, but if it were staged for television, how would anyone know? And that was the beginning of the idea. And, and I guess the Watergate years helped to uh, add to the meaning of what he was trying to say in Capricorn One, because this movie came out in 1977. It opened in America six months after it opened in Europe and Japan it wound up being Warner Brothers' big summer movie that year because Superman was delayed until the fall. So it was a big hit in in 1978. And I'm sure that uh, between Capricorn 1 and Outland led to him getting the gig directing 2010. But let's talk about the way that Hyams uses television in Capricorn 1 to start things off, television and news.
1: I I was thinking about that, watching Capricorn 1, because I didn't know any of that until... I, I'm trying to remember if it was, I think I tweeted about Time Cop and there's um, Twitter personality John Frankensteiner. Um, yes. He, he replied to me and you know told me about the news anchor background and he said it's so funny because Sudden Death feels like a news guy making an action movie. And I had never <laughs> yeah. thought of that, but it's so true. And and you can feel that all throughout Capricorn 1. Um, there is a very TV special presentation to the takeoff and everything that i think he gets so so well mm-hmm. it, it it feels so cinematic but it does feel like a you would have known what this felt like watching this in real time it's 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 a pretty wild needle to thread um what i what, what really kind of threw me most for with capricorn one sort of how lackadaisical it is and how funny it is uh, I wasn't expecting, you know, when you hear about conspiracy thrillers, it, it it is very bleak in a lot of ways, but it's so light on its feet. And I think a lot of that has to do with Elliot Gold's charm and everything, but the whole cast is charming. And it's it's a very funny movie, and I just was not expecting that at all. And it I think it really stands out from a lot of those movies of its era that, you know, this one
0: is so tense, but it doesn't take itself seriously at all. You know, what it reminded me of was um, North by Northwest, that it's a movie that is sort of a conspiracy minded film. Um, and it, it refers to a bunch of things, including the parallax view and all the president's men, a lot of Elliot Gould's or shoe leather reporting. And that movie is a lot like Woodward and Bernstein running around trying to get, you know, people to talk to him. But he also throws in like a biplane flying over the Grand Canyon, you know, like (laughs) Telly Savalas (laughs) as a crop duster, Uh, you know, like it's what I think it's designed to be is, you know, a spine chilling thriller, uh, a a sort of uh, conspiracy brain movie about, you know, uh, the moon landing being faked. Uh, So in this movie, the NASA uh, knows that their mission to Mars is going to fail. So they... Pull the astronauts off the rocket before it flies away, and take them to an undisclosed location, and tell them that the mission was going to be aborted, uh, and they were going to die, and they couldn't have that because that would affect their funding. And the, the NASA complains a lot about how the president is not really a supporter of NASA. So to keep the program going, they come up with this elaborate hoax, and they've created a, a Mars set in a warehouse, and they're going to have these astronauts pretend that they're on Mars and they're going to basically lie to the world. Uh, and it's, it's a, such an incredible sort of QAnon brain idea, except <laughs> it's from 1978.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I was thinking about that. I was watching this and I was like, you know, this does sort of uh, nod its head towards a lot of the craziest people on earth, but at the, but, but it's it's funny because he's so you can tell just just with with his filmmaking that he's so aware of how silly of an idea this all is Mm -hmm. um that you know you you can kind of laugh at it and you know it's definitely taking the piss a bit out of people like this and it's just such a shame now that that was such a fringe kind of viewpoint back then and now it's like half of
0: the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What did Peter Himes know and when did he know? It? <laughs> but it also speaks to, you know, American cynicism at the time about Watergate and, you know, like uh, not being able to trust authority figures and not being able to trust your eyes and what you're being told on television you know and this comes from a guy whose whole background was television news i love how he uh, films all the mission control scenes like the control for like live super bowl coverage <laughs> yeah <laughs> we hear a lot of the of a voice of like nasa mission control guy doing a lot of the narration in the movie oh and the the, the way this is
1: edited is so interesting to me too i love the um the I'm trying to remember what scene it was specifically. I think it was the takeoff, how it's cut together with the the astronauts being flown to the black site and everything. There's such a great economy of storytelling where you're seeing both things happen at once, and it's just so it's edited so well. It's I don't know. It, it feels sort of modern in a way too, in ways that I wasn't expecting. And and I, I compared it on Twitter too. I said this feels like the kind of movie that Adam McKay has been trying to make since the big short. But, <laughs> yeah. but the difference is, is like Hyams trusts his, trusts his audience not to be idiots. And Adam McKay does.
0: <laughs> and also um, Hyams is a skilled visual artist. Oh, yeah. like, he's, he communicates so much with camera placement. And uh, I love how um, the Mars landing is uh you know we see the tv version of what's happening and you can see all the trickery that's gone into it like they've slowed the video down to make it look like they're on mars's gravity and uh but then there's this incredible shot where the camera pans back and we just see the mars module on a gigantic set with the klieg lights and the cameras set up it's a very chilling moment oh yeah and And there's something thrilling,
1: too, about watching the mechanics that go into making a television special. It's I think that that his background in that world really helps with that, because I never would have, you know, as much as I love film and filmmaking and everything, I never would have thought that, you know, watching kind of what goes into making TV would be that exciting for me. But there is something thrilling about, you know, like, it, it's it's paced exactly like a thriller, you know, hit the slow-mo. And, you know, you, you can hear them, you know, relaying all this information to each other. And then you have the one, uh, or no, that's earlier in the movie, but you have the um, the one guy who's, you know, kind of sniffing out that this is all bullshit very early on, and he's kind of sitting in there. I just had never seen anything like that before. You know, something as, I guess, mechanical as making TV be, Mm -hmm.
0: be so exciting like that. Mm -hmm. I love this one scene. Um, I always love it when conspiracy thrillers leave loose ends that never get tied up because there's that great scene where Elliot Gould goes to visit his friend who worked at NASA, the one who figured out that something weird was going on with the telemetrics who, uh, we presume, uh, was disappeared and probably killed, but Gould goes to his apartment where he's been several times and some woman answers the door and says, "I don't know anybody by that name and then he looks in the apartment and it's totally different furnishing like like it gives you an idea of how deep the conspiracy goes that they're <laughs> actually like they thought that Elliot Gould might show up at the guy's apartment someday so they <laughs> moved a whole fake environment in just like they faked the Mars landing. I loved
1: that. That that's one of the first moments in the movie where I've you feel this eerie sort of unease kind of creep over you because it's like you said. There's a loose end there, and that it's never really answered. How long has this woman even been living there? When was the yeah. last time he went to his friend's house? You don't know how long this has been going on, and it's it's so disturbing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Another uh, fascinating detail, uh, I never really watched all of Hyam's science fiction movies in one shot, and I realized how many relationships they had to one another. There's a very interesting detail where Hal Holbrook has this like five-minute speech that's really overwritten, where he explains to the astronauts what's going on here. Holbrook tells them, the good people from Con Amalgamate delivered a life support system cheap enough so that they could make a profit on the deal. Works out fine for everybody. Con Amalgamate makes money. We have our life support system everything's peachy except they made a little too much profit we found out 2 months ago it wouldn't work you guys would all be dead in 3 weeks but what's incredible is that that company con amalgamate is the evil corporation in outland so this is like Hyams creating this multiverse before we <laughs> knew there were multiverses that like the evil company from Outland is also in cahoots with NASA in their evil conspiracy in the late 70s in Capricorn One. I hadn't picked up on that until you you pointed it out
1: to me when you when you were messaging me when we were preparing for the show. And that's just that's so it, it's making me want to go back and watch all these, including Time Cop again and see if there's threads through all of that. Like do these all exist in the same corporate future world (laughs) where you know uh yeah and i saw a lot of people saying you know that outland that these movies all feel like they could take place in the alien universe too and i think that that is kind of true but i like the idea that he's kind of creating his own whole world it's it it's very and then you also have the fact that uh Outland takes place on one of Jupiter's moons. 2010 deals with another one of Jupiter's moons. They're all there's all they're all kind of swimming in the same well there.
0: <laughs> the other thing that I loved about Capricorn 1 was the black helicopters. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking terrifying when cuz all the astronauts all um, they escape when what happens is the the ship that went on the Mars mission burns up on re-entry, which means that NASA now has to kill all the astronauts to keep the conspiracy under wraps and all the, the astronauts actually escape in a, in a private jet and fly away. But the, de- the plane is damaged on their escape and they land in the desert and all go their separate ways and they each have a flare with them which they will shoot up if uh, they need to alert the other astronauts that they're out of the game kind of thing. And uh, those parts are very scary because they kill O.J., and then later on they kill Sam Waterston. But the way they kill Sam Waterston is so terrifying because he sees these birds that look like vultures that are flying in the sky, and then we realize it's a hallucination, and it's the the black helicopters that have tracked him down.
1: That stuff was, again, very eerie to me, but I really loved how... The helicopters kind of became like living creatures where they're kind of peeking around corners and everything there's a scene where the two helicopters kind of turn and nod at one another before flying yeah. off yeah it's, it's so silly to like say kind of describe what's going on because because you picture like a helicopter like it, it almost makes me think of like if the helicopter were animated like a looney tunes cartoon or something with like big eyes on it or something peeking around corners but but when you see it in, in practice it's terrifying and it's and and it makes you miss um, sort of real stunt work like that, you know, with that whole end set piece, which is kind of astonishing because this is still early in his career to be trusted with that kind of stunt work. And and he was given that same sort of uh, freedom and busting also with a lot of the chase scenes and that, but this is like a a higher level where you're crashing helicopters into the sides of mountains and everything. And it's, you really miss that sort of thing, <laughs> and because there's yeah. just something so tactile about that.
0: Yeah. Also, Capricorn One has a terrific Jerry Goldsmith score. Oh yeah. Which yeah. of course leads us to um, a little discussion about Outland, uh, which was Haim's sort of big swing, his big uh, high budget science fiction movie, the first film for the Lad Company, who would later release Chariots of Fire and Blade Runner. Soon, I'll see that this is just like every other mining
1: town. I work these people hard and I, uh, I let them play hard. There's never much trouble. We're all professionals. I'm sure we are. We've only been here two weeks. It'll get be better, I promise. I got nothing more on that incident in the mine yesterday. It looks like some guy just went wacko.
0: It happens
1: here. Yeah. I off. I don't know, it just happens here. Why? I'm not a psychiatrist, I can't tell you why. Some people just can't take it here after a while. What's that guy think he's doing? No way, it could have been
0: homicide. I think of Alien, Blade Runner, and Outland as my headcanon of 80s sci-fi. They feel like they all take place in the same universe and what's so strange about outland is that it feels spiritually related to blade runner even though it came out first
1: it, it is it, it's interesting too because they, they 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 are all of a piece of this sci-fi future that's not a utopia we didn't really get any better we just got worse and it's now We've, we've infected other reaches of the galaxy and and everything with our you know privatized bullshit <laughs> and yeah now now we're out on Jupiter and you know the same kind of guys that you would see working at a dock somewhere now just sitting around a table smoking cigarettes and you know ready to go work the minds of another planet and it's it's so bleak in a way that you know you you, you watch this movie and you're like man it, it, it feels more like this Blade Runner alien they all feel more realistic in a way of like this is probably where it's heading you know if we ever do make it off world it's just going to be the same sort of thing and mm-hmm. it, it's never it's never going to feel like the sleek you know uh alien has this little bit but like it's never going to feel like the sleek white you know walls everywhere and we're all wearing like white white outfits with like silver gadgets and everything it's all just mm-hmm. going to be dingy dirty smoky and and working
0: for people who don't care about us and it <laughs> but yeah. i don't know it feels more relatable in that way <laughs> It feels relatable, and also it feels like um, this mining colony predates by decades <laughs> uh, the, the the events of the movie. Like this mining colony looks really, really lived in and and worked over, and oh yeah, and, and legitimate. And I love. Um, how Hyams understands you know, what makes a science fiction movie good, which is big clunky buttons, uh, gaudy sort of displays, uh, you know, little uh, pops of color all over the place, uh, lots of smoky hallways and, uh, and just teeming with life. I love the sequences in the movie where the blue collar workers are all in the lunch area or in their quarters um, in their little bunk beds, and uh, they're all wearing these cool primary colored baseball hats with the Con Am logo on them. And I, I wrote in my notes that all these guys also dress like Ridley Scott or Tony Scott. <laughs> 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 they all look like they're working on the set of alien, except they're, they're extras in Outland and Hyams had the extras show up on the set hours before they were needed. So they would look even more weary by the time they were filming the, Oh, wow. You know, it's the little things that make uh, art direction so good, you know, exhaust your extras and then call action.
1: And I think the best the best piece of art direction for this is casting uh, <laughs> Peter Boyle. Yeah. Uh, he's he's the best piece of scenery because you see him and you're like, oh yeah, that guy, you you, you could see him in any blue collar working class situation and it just
0: yeah. makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Another mind blower uh, that I found in my research because Peter Boyle's the villain, uh, the Con Am guy in Outland, but in a movie that Hyams wrote, which I have also discussed on this podcast called tr baskin directed by herbert ross with candace bergen peter Boyle's in that movie too and he mentions in a line of dialogue that he works for con amalgamate so the conspiracy goes (laughs) even further brandon it goes into the early 70s he's been he's been this is his red apple cigarettes i think he just (laughs) loves to mention con amalgamate whenever he can
1: One, one thing that i was noticing with these movies um that I really enjoyed it's, it's definitely there in Capricorn one, but I think it's weaved in more through outland and then 2010 is the idea of our passions and our jobs taking us away from the people we love and, and just what kind of person that makes us and, you know, what we're willing to sacrifice. And of course that's all over Capricorn one, but I think you feel it even more in, um, Outland in 2010, you know, seeing families over screens and everything and Mm -hmm. feeling that distance and, you know, I, I don't like to, uh, sort of diagnose anything, you know, with personal lives, but I do wonder how much of this was autobiographical because, you know, movie making takes you away from your family and everything and, and it's just, there's such a running thread through these movies of just distance and the, the, it it's, it's very sad in Outland, you know, when his family disappears, but he just has this sense of justice and everything that he needs to do this. You know, he needs to do something that matters. And a lot of this kind of reminds me of, you know, the same sort of fascinations that Michael Mann has, you know, such a deep commitment to our job that it kind of blows up our families a little bit. And that's all over these movies. And I, that's something that's always very interesting to me. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, speaking of the, the great visual language that I am speaks in films, in Outland, we see the Marshall O'Neill played by the great Sean Connery, one of his best performances, I would say. Oh, uh, definitely. We see O'Neill's wife and kid in the kitchen talking about this and that. He comes home from work. It turns out that the wife has a secret plan to like take off with the kid and get off this colony. They've only been there for a couple of weeks, but she hates it. And then later in the movie, O'Neill comes home to discover that his family seems to be gone now. And there's a video message waiting for him from her saying that she didn't have the guts to say this to his face and that she's taken the kid and he's never been to Earth and we need to get back and we hope that you'll join us too. But while Connery's watching this video, he cuts to a shot of the, a wide shot of the room with the empty kitchen. And we remember that the wife and child were once in this kitchen, and now they've been—they're uh, gone, and she's just a, an image on the screen. And he starts watching it over and over again as the movie continues because he misses her. And I also realized when I was watching Time Cop that Van Dam also uses a video of his now missing wife as a way of sort of staying in touch with her, except it's really mediated. Like he's, 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 he just wants to see her and hear her again, but there's nothing left.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll talk about 2010 more, but there's a moment that really knocked the wind out of me in that movie where, you know, it's, it's sort of the same sort of thing that we're talking about where Roy Scheider, you know, it's the whole montage leading up to his trip and everything, And he he looks in at his son and I wasn't expecting this at all. He looks in, takes a look at his son, and it's it's not it doesn't linger the way you think it would. Because there's just such an abrupt cut to the ship floating in space, and that's the last we see of his family. And it's just it's the way he weaves that in, it's never What's the word? It's it's never sappy or treacly. It, it's very lived in and and deeply sad, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you feel that all throughout Outland. And I totally agree with you. This is one of Connery's best performances. I said it. I think I said it on Twitter. I can't remember where I wrote this, but uh, it might have been letterboxed. Um, I said it somewhere. But you know, he's of course you know a movie star. He's one of the biggest stars of his era and everything. So I'm not saying anything new. But at the same time, you kind of I think as we get distance from movie stars and everything and, you know, people become brands and, you know, we, everyone's going to see movies for the the brand instead of the, the movie star. You, you kind of take people for granted and you forget how great they were. And then watching him in a movie like this, where he's so, he's so kind of low key and downcast, but he still, there's just a, decades of life in every expression on his face. It, it's a really be- beautiful performance. I was really kind of taken aback by it because I, I love Connery. I love him as Bond. I love him, you know, later in life and everything, but this kind of middle period where he's, you know, not quite old yet, but he's, you know, not the Bond age anymore. Although never say never again, I think <laughs> shortly after this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but this middle period for him is so interesting to me and, and he's just, he's excellent in this. I, I really,
0: really can't say that enough. Well, Connery has working class bona fides because that's where he comes from. And so he's perfectly cast in this film. And And I really want to talk to you about one of the things that I love about Outland is how it puts you in this um, world of sort of economic exploitation and uh, abuse of the workers by management. And I'm pretty sure that Hyams casts his lot with the working people. Um, I started thinking that this Mars colony on Io in Outland is being run the way that Elon Musk would run it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, making sure that there's drugs around to increase productivity because the Marshall starts to realize that there are all these unexplained deaths that are going on. Space workers are losing their minds. They're suddenly uh, taking their helmets off in outer space and their heads explode or they get into a elevator to go down into a, you know, an oxygen-free, depressurized environment. Like they're killing themselves. Chaim said that the look of the mining colony was supposed to inform the sort of the mental uh, breakdowns of the people that are working there. He says, a mining operation like Con-Am 27 represents a frontier, and frontiers strike me as sinister, dangerous places of enormous hardship. This film was originally uh, devised to be a Western, but he just transplanted it into outer space. <laughs> uh, this was before Control F features on a <laughs> <laughs> computer. But, um, the glimpses that we get of life at the space station is it's just such a claustrophobic environment. He handles it so well, all the spacesuits that everyone is wearing. They all look like they're all beaten up and, uh, you know, they've been in use for years, all the, the, you know, the, the oxygen tanks that they have to plug into, to, uh, you know, get their oxygen supply to go out on their missions. Um, it's just a. It's an. It feel. It reminded me a little bit of Soylent Green, too. Just this. Yeah. Uh, this overpopulated, depressing as hell world where um, vice and sin are sort of given to the workers to keep them um, quote unquote productive. But even if the drugs that um, that Shepherd played by. By Peter Boyle is making sure are available to the workers. He doesn't care whether or not they're going to go nuts and kill themselves after a month of using this drug because productivity's up.
1: Well, that's it's it's funny because I I said this in my Time Cop uh, little blurb, you know I said sometimes it feels a little brain dead to watch movies from you know the past and go wow this is wildly pr- uh, prescient but. All of his movies are wildly well prescient, you know, yeah. and and he's taking things that have happened in the past to, you know, factory towns and everything. That's kind of what this is. But at the same mm. time, this does feel like, you know, the stories you hear about Amazon workers, you know, dying on the job or, you know, mm-hmm. not being able to use the restroom and everything. And it's yeah. like obviously being taken to a heightened degree. But at the same time, um, it kind of made me think of my own job a little bit. You know, I'm a writer and everything. That's, that's what I like to tell people. But I... But, you know, that's unsustainable in the world we're living in now. So I do have like a, a main job that I do where I work, work overnight doing maintenance in a corporate bank tower. And it just watching this movie was making me think about how, you know, I work Sundays through Thursdays. And then when I get off on Friday morning, it's like six in the morning. I come home. I, I try to have like a normal weekend. I'll try to keep myself awake, you know, because I, I don't want to go to sleep and then waste half of my Friday because then after Saturday, I'm back at work on Sunday. And mm-hmm. so I th- I think a lot about how, you know, I'm always trying to, you know, maximize my time outside of work. And it makes me feel loopy sometimes where I'm awake. Am I asleep? You know, what's going on? And it just watching this movie was, you know, obviously I'm not at the extreme where, you know, I'm going to go loopy and make my head explode. but <laughs> But sometimes I... I feel like that a little bit, you know, watching Outland. I'm like, I kind of relate to these guys. You know, you, you, you take any chance you can get to do anything fun. And for them, it's, you know, the worst possible vices that's leading to their deaths. But it's, it's you know, it, it's it's an extremely relatable position to be in where, you know, you, this is the only job you can do based on circumstances and everything. And, you know, you, you got to try to let it out where you can. And, and you know, I'm not, you know... I'm not out there killing anybody or, you know, anything like that. But, Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's, it's hard sometimes to kind of just sit down and not, especially when you're surrounded by your job and everything like these guys are, that, that exploitation is so, so fundamental to the way a lot of people live now. And it's, it's so interesting and frustrating to see it depicted so accurately, you know, Mm -hmm. back in 1981, (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, you know, here in Canada we have, uh, you know, heavy-duty mining extraction operations in Alberta. We have a, a city called Red Deer, which is basically uh, the island of Mordor. <laughs> you know, it's like the you know, fracking and and uh, exploitation. You hear all sorts of stories about uh, sex workers being abused who are up there, and you know, people that are basically like um, doing tons of drugs to you know help pass the time. Uh, you know, like just this culture of sort of uh, exploitation across the board, the workers are being exploited, the people in the area are being exploited, the land is being exploited, the, you know, the the company is making tons of money. There's an amazing uh, speech that Shepard gives here. This is when O'Neill is trying to um, shut down the operation, like O'Neill steals the drug supply that is being brought into this space station. And uh, disposes of it, which, of course, now gets Shepard in a lot of trouble. And Shepard tells O'Neill, let me tell you what you're dealing with here. I run a franchise. The company hired me to dig as much ore out of this hellhole as possible. My hookers are clean. Some of them are good looking. My booze isn't watered. The workers are happy. When the workers are happy, they dig more ore. They get paid more bonus money. When they dig more ore, the company's happy. When the company's happy, I'm happy. Connery says, sounds Wonderful. And Shepard says, Nothing here is wonderful. It works. That's enough. It's just such a grim uh, portrayal. This is the far future, but it also sounds like today.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. You know, just people being exploited to kind of make crap, and the crap is sold to everybody. And, you know, in a year, that crap will run out and you'll have to buy a new one and who's going to make it, the people being exploited. It might not be those same people who made it a year ago.
0: Cause you know, yeah. they're dead, but it's- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's- well, f- well, well filtering this movie through the, Through uh, the present day, it kind of feels like if Elon Musk had a lithium mining colony on one of the moons (laughs) of Jupiter, they'd be sending them the the ore back, uh, maybe using the Nostromo to transport it, uh, to uh, give the wealthy people on Earth uh, the lithium they need for their electronic devices. Exactly. It it just feels like there's a class of humanity that benefits from the terrible labor conditions on this uh, moon of Jupiter. And, and i like uh, it's just I, so great and it's uh, this movie is better than mediocre is what I'm saying is when people complain about how this movie's so derivative of alien and high noon uh that's neither here nor there for me and in fact i think this movie' is better than high noon
1: i i would agree with that and and you know e- subject matter aside and thematic stuff aside you know film is a visual medium and it's just like this was one of the more gorgeous sci-fi movies I've seen and mm-hmm. you know I was that that was another thing I was just so taken aback by the greens of like you know the lighting and everything you know that that's something you see in a lot of other sci-fi and everything but if you showed this to somebody who had never heard of Peter Hyams never heard of this movie and said you know hey I want you to watch this Ridley Scott movie with me they would probably not wouldn't know the difference. And that's not to that's not to say that Himes doesn't have his own distinct visual style. He absolutely does. But it's just I think he deserves to be spoken of in the same breath as a Ridley Scott.
0: I think it's unfair how people sort of write him off as being derivative because, you know, I subscribe to the idea that counterfeit art can be art. A movie like Den of Thieves can be just as good as a movie absolutely. that it's obviously <laughs> ripping off.
1: <laughs> you know. And Den of Thieves. I could go on forever. How that movie is. <laughs> I, I wrote a whole piece on how that movie is like secretly brilliant. But yeah. um, <laughs> but yeah. uh, we we kind of miss nowadays. Like the Journeyman. I think the only guy I can really think of right now, and, and I hate his movies, is Sean Levy. Like I yeah, he, he's the only guy that's kind of jumping around in genres, and not really. Most of it is like more like sort of family friendly, crowd pleasing blockbusters. But he's he's doing different things. None of them are movies I particularly like, but we don't have filmmakers who have that sort of career anymore, and and it's 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 kind of sad, because when you watch one who's this good, you're like, man, I miss that, you know, these, like, guys who can plug themselves into any genre, and I just, I don't know, we, we really miss having that, I mean, we're not really making those kind of movies anymore either, so, like, I guess if a Peter Himes, you know, I mean, he's still alive, but if he existed now in his prime, he would be, you know, Directing, I don't know. I can't even think of one right now. He's some franchise offshoot, and you know, th- th- that's depressing to think about. But, um, but yeah, just these guys just don't exist anymore. And he, I don't know. I think he's, I, I hate to say journeyman because it sounds a little dismissive, but he's the best of that kind of filmmaker to me.
0: Yeah. I would call these people craftsmen. And yes. as yes. A, You know, but he gets written off as a journeyman just because he's shown such a display of range. But um, he's very good at what he does.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> like a film like Running Scared or The Star Chamber. You know, there's the Running Scared is uh, a movie that I have to actually see still.
1: But R- Running Scared is funny because that that's a movie I always tell people there, there, there's like a very very brief window in time where there's like it's like a two movie period where billy crystal was one of the hottest actors on earth like yeah he is so hot in running scared it's like shocking and then when harry met sally he's you know i think he's very hot in that movie too but running scared like it's kind of shocking you, you're like wow he's like a good looking man and then it never it was never before never since that i don't think anyone's <laughs> ever thought that about billy crystal but <laughs> i It's had to kind of shout that out you know make it, making your actors look like movie stars uh, he he does it well in that one <laughs> It's a very fun movie, too. I I really recommend that one.
0: Now, the MVP of this film, Outland, is Frances Sternhagen as Dr. Lazarus. She's so good in this film. The part was originally written to be a man, but Peter Hyams thought that it was dumb to have everybody in the movie be men. So he cast her. And her scenes with Connery are terrific.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's it's funny because I guess you can... You know, not not to be a gender essentialist, I guess, but you can kind of tell that this was written for a man. Their interplay and everything is very like, almost sort of reminds me of like a gruffer version of uh, Kirk and Bones from Star Trek. They have mm-hmm. that sort of rapport with one another, but it's it's so fun how like it could you you could see this tipping over into romance, like if you know. If Connery was, you know, maybe ten percent more of a piece of shit and was like, "Yeah, I don't care about my family," and but uh, you know, you could see this tipping into romance. But but the fact that it never does is just so fun because you you have so few platonic relationships in movies to begin with, especially in movies like this. And it's like they're just equals with one another. You know, if they if they weren't out there saving this colony from you know corporate tyranny, they would probably just be hanging out at the bar together, at, mm-hmm. you know, shooting the shit.
0: Well, this is something I find actually rather based about Peter Hyams. He does it as well in 2010, yeah. where, where he has that uh, Russian cosmonaut who rides uh, during the aerobraking scene with Roy Scheider and Helen Mirren, and uh, they don't make it sexual. Right, right. They're just, they're just uh, co-workers, Right. And then that even, you know, we'll get to that in a little
1: bit, but even in Time Cop, you know, there's the whole fight scene with, you know, uh, what's, what's the matter? You don't want to hit a woman? And, no, no, he he says, I don't want to hit a woman. And then he goes, okay, now I want to hit a woman. Yeah,
0: he said, I changed my mind yeah. after she kicks his ass. It, it's
1: it's very uh, equal opportunity in these movies.
0: Yeah. <laughs> The other fun fact about Outland is that there are two members of the cast of Cheers in this movie with Francis Sternhagen, who played Cliff's mom, and Cliff himself. He's the guy who uh, whose head explodes at the beginning, the miner who thinks there are spiders in his spacesuit. That's
1: I, Cliff. I had, to, I, I had to Google that because I was like, is that Cliff? And then I looked it up. And I was like, holy shit, that is Cliff. It's so funny to see that in the beginning. Speaking of, this movie has some great head explosions. Oh, like my Really God. Tr-
0: yeah. yeah, some nerds were saying, oh, well, it's not scientifically accurate. And it's like, who cares? It's oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know who I also forgot was in this movie is Clark Peters from The Wire. Yeah. Who, who plays um, the Marshall's uh, deputy after James B. Sicking dies. Uh, he gets uh, a, a, another sidekick, and this is the high noon part of the movie, which is so well done, so nerve-wracking. The final like half hour of the movie is just this gigantic countdown. That's another thing that all four of these movies we're talking about, is the high get so much suspense out of countdowns in all of these movies. And so when the shuttle is heading to uh, from the space station to the mining colony. Uh, it takes about four days because, um, Peter Boyle's so mad at Sean Connery that he hires some space mercs to come in and kill the guy. And, uh, we feel like so much dread when the shuttle is finally landing on the moon. Like I, I almost had a panic attack the first time I saw this movie (laughs) because it's so nerve wracking, just waiting for these killers to come off the ship and, uh, nobody's going to help, uh, Marshall O'Neill. Um, everybody's hiding in that sort of sleazy bar with the hologram strippers. <laughs> That's another incredible <laughs> visual touch to this film. That's a bar that looks like it could be in Blade Runner or Alien. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, of course it's based on High
1: Noon, so there is that Western element. But I've been kind of, uh, I, I just watched the entire um, Criterion put out a really terrific box set of the renowned Westerns, the Bud mm-hmm. Medica, Randolph yes. Scott movies, and just watch it, you know. Watching those and then watching this, just it really. I was sitting there and I was like, you know, this could have been, you know, the way he's kind of you know reaching out to the you know community and saying, you know, is anyone going to help me? And then none of them do. And it's just I could have seen Randolph Scott, you know, you know the sheriff of a western town, you know, and no one's coming together to help him. And it's just it's such a at its base element, it's such a. If you strip this down, it's so simple, but you know, just putting it out in space like that just makes it so thrilling. And I don't know, it's, I I really loved this movie. I was, I I, I can't, you know, I'm kind of talking in circles here at this point, but it's really kind of blown away that I don't hear about this movie more outside of film circles.
0: Yeah, when you hear about this movie, it's people saying it's better than you think, but it's like no, this is like superior 80s science fiction. Like this is about as good as it gets.
1: <laughs> That's kind of my whole what I try to do with my writing is you know I'm not going to go off on too much of a tangent here, but um, where I got my kind of first got my you know I almost said where I got first recognized as if like <laughs> as if I'm recognized at all, but but where my writing sort of took off is writing about DTV action, particularly peter heim's son john Hyams. and I, I kind of always want to push back on the whole like it's better than you think aspect because i'll watch some of this stuff and you know w- under the with the thought process going in of like oh i've heard this is better than you think and then i watch these things you know john Hyams universal soldier movies and then now peter heims movies i'll watch them and I go this isn't just better than you think this is actually great and we should be speaking about it as such you know and and i always try to push back on that because i feel like it's it it, you know i I, i'm glad you agree it just feels so reductive to say yeah yeah this is pretty good you know this is better than you would think it would be it's like no this is really great work
0: (laughs) yeah well people um say you know things like well it's so obviously a ripoff of high noon harlan ellison around the time that 2010 was coming out did this uh legendary essay where he went to town on how much he hated outland and how how dare hyam's uh attempt to make a sequel to 2001 uh you know alien and high noon are basically plagiarism is what he said but i actually think that high noon is an overrated western it's not one of my favorites it's fine Uh, um but I think that it's possible to do a, a high noon in space that is a legitimately good movie that transcends that write-off.
1: Oh yeah, and I'm not super concerned with things being derivative. Like uh, this is a little bit of a digression, but there's a new um, Wages of Fear movie coming to Netflix, mm-hmm. and and you know I'm excited for it because I like the director. He's a French director and everything. But you know the important thing is. I tweeted about it and said, you know, I'm kind of excited for this. I think people are writing it off and blah, blah, blah. And someone responded to me and said, you know, I think there's never a shortage of guys coming together to do a volatile mission. Just like there's never a shortage of guys starting at the bottom of a building, trying to get to the top of the building. And that's what I think for a lot of these movies, you know, this movie in particular too, like the high noon idea, there's never a shortage of that kind of thing. You can put that in any setting and and I'm down to watch it. And, Mm and, 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 it just helps that Peter Himes is, you know, a great filmmaker.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a reflexive reaction to this Wages of Fear remake as well. Um, I'm going to give it a chance, though, based on the the, the filmmaker's uh, skills. I'm unfamiliar with his work. So uh, when, well, when the action aficionados were telling me to relax, <laughs> <laughs> that this I guy was it, making though. a, yeah, you know, how dare you uh, remake the Wages of Fear and Sorcerer. It's like people said that about Sorcerer. Uh, it turned out to be a pretty good movie.
1: <laughs> I definitely, I definitely get it though. Like you know, you have two classics now. It's like I don't know. You might be testing your luck trying it a third time, but mm-hmm. but we'll see.
0: <laughs> and also, uh, as we transition to 2010, as you love action so much, can we talk for a minute about the incredible fight in the kitchen in this movie? Oh yes,
1: I. <laughs> it's so brutal, and it it's just. I, I was kind of unprepared for that, and you know. The, the, Connery's a little out of shape in this movie, and you know he's breathing real heavy and i, I love fights like that when you know the, mm-hmm. the heroes kind of getting their ass kicked and have to resort to being you know a little craftier than their opponent and this this fight was brutal. i, I loved it
0: uh, I loved the the ridiculous scene where he's running across all the tables, not the most efficient (laughs) way to get across the room, but the cameras, uh, it's a one shot, uh, following along with them. I guess they've got the camera on a dolly on a, on a track, but, uh, it's, uh, it's just heartstoppingly thrilling that scene. And it has all the hilarious, uh, tropes, like he's about to put Connery's head in the French fry (laughs) deep fryer, (laughs) you know, I am just so gotta have that.
1: He, Himes is so good at those one shots. There's one in um, Busting where they're, they're chasing down a suspect and, and there's just such a, it, it there's just this thrilling one shot through like this little market. And it's just like, he's so good at that. It, great, He's a great filmmaker of action. That's another
0: thing is like, he's just so underrated in that regard too. Mm-hmm. But it's a combination of terrific editing and a terrific eye knowing, yes. yeah. you know, how to, how to milk this sequence for all it's worth. And I
1: also love in that fight that that's another example of these workers, you know, you know they're, they're afraid of, you know, they're so exploited, they know they're replaceable that even while this fight's happening, no one's stepping in to help him. They're all just kind of standing around watching this and it's like if he dies right here, you know, that doesn't matter to them because they still have to go to work and, you know, because they're mm-hmm. replaceable.
0: Yeah. And, and they know that this could be them if they said anything, you know, nobody's yeah. willing to come forward and support him. that's the big thrill in Outland when Sternhagen basically says, if you're looking for heroes, you've come to the wrong place. You know, I'm not going to help you here. Nobody's going to help you. And then she turns out to actually be the only person who's going to help him.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. Man. She
0: uh, Anyway, what a picture.
1: Wow. I so... Not not to be distracted here, but I you know we're sitting here talking about these you know eighties movies and action and everything, and I just got a sad alert on my phone that Carl Weathers passed away that's ah oh, wow, that's, that's a sad bad. way to find out in the middle of a podcast, but yeah, uh, wow uh, oh. sorry, sorry to break you. the news here to you <laughs> I didn't yeah. bring the whole show down. I don't know if we'll want to keep that in, but uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll be the judge if i if I'm not crying while I'm editing <laughs> this part i'll I'll keep it in. well RIP to a legend I love Carl Weathers I saw Action Jackson in a movie theater that's how much I love Carl Weathers
1: I, I love that movie. That he's—that's another director. I don't know if you'll ever cover Craig Baxley. But yes, he has, he has that three movie run. That's like among the best action I've ever seen.
0: <laughs> well, I was I was sold on Action Jackson when I saw the trailer where Sharon Stone says to him, "So why do they call you Action?" And then all of a sudden, this car comes out <laughs> to try to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great movie. <laughs> yeah, incredible performance by Craig T. Nelson as the villain. Oh, yeah, yeah. Another underrated. He should have been in some Peter Hyams movies, actually. Oh, he would have been perfect. Hyams villain. Yeah. How are you going to convince your people to allow Americans to go on the flight?
1: We are going to get there first, and you have the knowledge to make the trip work. I'm going on the flight.
0: How far away is Jupiter?
1: Far. Mommy said you're going to be asleep for a long time. Are you going to die?
0: Dr. Floyd. Dr. Floyd, Dr. Arloff has encountered some strange data coming from Europa. I will send Max down with a pod. I wouldn't do that. Oh, really? If you want to send a pod down there, send an unmanned one. Hey, a piece of pie. Cake. Piece of cake. Cake, yes. If this date is correct, then there's something down there.
1: It is correct. It was organic. There was life. Is it moving?
0: Yes. Incredible. okay let's move on to the controversial movie that i am a fan of and i think you enjoyed it as well but it has a terrible reputation as being a bad movie and i want to dismiss those ideas from my listeners minds 2010 based on the arthur c Clarke novel sequel 2010 odyssey 2 this movie has uh you know how do you possibly make a sequel to 2001 and I think a lot of people just dismiss this movie out of hand as not being on the level of 2001. But again, with the great Peter Hyams, he decided that the only way to do a sequel to 2001 was to go in the completely other direction. Stylistically, tonally, he uses the same sets and he refers to the original film a lot. But this movie has basically been designed, and Hyams has said as much, to be a movie for people who've never seen 2001. You really don't have to have watched the first movie to enjoy this movie. No, and it's it's honestly been a while since I've seen
1: 2001. You know, of course, I remember the movie and everything. I love Kubrick. But it's it's been, geez, probably over 10 years since I've watched 2001. Um, and so it's not fresh in my mind. You know, I remember all the hallmarks and everything. But I, I was tempted to rewatch it before this. And I was like, you know what? I kind of just want to dive into this. And I'm, gl- I'm glad I did because... This movie's great. I, I think it's another one of those ones that's not just better than you think, it's actually good, but I do think watching 2001 might have been a disservice to it if I had done it back-to-back, but I I, I was really taken with just how light on its feet this one is. You know, like you said, it's audience-friendly and everything, but Roy Scheider is such a, such a calming presence in movies. <laughs> um, I don't know what it is about him, but he just has such a, like, you see him on screen and you're like, I'm in good hands. And I don't know, he just having him be sort of the central focus of this movie really kind of helps it. he's so charismatic. And I, I also really like that this is so tied in with the, with the space race of the time. I think that's a mm-hmm. really interesting way to go about doing
0: a movie like this. It was a minor hit when it was first released. It actually did better financially than Dune did. It didn't get great reviews. It was, um, it was like popular entertainment the, the, the difference though, uh, the many differences in this movie is that 2001 takes a very dim view towards humanity and, you know, the coldness of space. And, you know, it's not really like a, a movie about how wonderful the human race is. Whereas 2010 is actually very sentimental about the human yeah. race. <laughs> and, uh, and 2001 is set in the future and points to the future of filmmaking in many ways, like, films were different after 2001. Where 2010 feels more like a science fiction that speaks to the present, that it's not really about the far future, it's about the near future, but framed in what was uh, the thing that everyone was talking about in the 80s, which was the arms race and the war between the US and the Soviet Union. I guess for some people, maybe that dates the movie, especially since the Soviet Union collapsed well before the year 2010. But um, it's a humanist movie. It's, it's got a pacifist message about peace and cooperation. Like this was the sort of the perestroika of, of the light, la- the last years of the Soviet Union, but told by Americans. And I think that that, there is something to, commendable about this movie, especially in the Reagan era, not being particularly antagonistic towards the Soviets and not being uh, particularly praiseworthy of the battle, ideological battle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. That, like this movie, is grounded in the fact that people live under these systems.
1: I, I really loved that about it because you know it could come off as a little corny. I guess you know, like you know, you think of Rocky Four and everything. You know, if I can change and you can change and everything, but I, I love Rocky Four. But, um, mm-hmm. but 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 I, I love the sort of like message of you know yeah, everyone on earth right now is kind of fucking up, but why don't we just work together and get out of this situation together? And it's, it's a really lovely kind of coming together, you know, and of course you have great actors playing at Helen Mirren's terrific. And, and I really love the, the friendship between John Lithgow and not remembering the actor's name right now, but he's the, uh, the rent guy from Spider-Man.
0: Yes. Uh, that's uh, that's the great Elia Baskin.
1: Right, right. Great. Uh, it slipped my uh, mind there but uh but that that friendship between those two is, is such a lovely little interplay that i don't think i don't think you get much in in a lot of blockbusters now where there's like these little moments of character that you get to just sit in and you know kind of watch these people interact and that that was what i was with, most taken with 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 this movie is just watching this crew kind of sit around on the space station and kind of just become friends with one another you know it's a gorgeous movie it's a thrilling movie but i i was more than any of these movies that i watched uh before the you know coming on this is the one where i was just like i could watch another three hours of these guys just kind of hanging out together because it's really lovely Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it has that fantastic uh, set. They had to basically reimagine the discovery because when Kubrick wrapped on two thousand and one, he had all the props destroyed. He didn't want things from two thousand and one to be repurposed the way that Robbie the robot was repurposed in uh, films after Forbidden <laughs> Planet. He he just wrecked everything so that nobody could uh, re reclaim it for another crappy science fiction movie. So they basically had to work off a print of 2001 to rebuild those sets. But my favorite sets in 2010 are of the Leonov, the Soviet ship, the color yeah. schemes, the gigantic buttons, uh, like all the computers look like the Simon game, <laughs> like <laughs> big red and yellow and green buttons and uh, really a janky looking Soviet uh, typeface on all the computer screens. And uh, you, you always hear all the Russian cosmonauts all talking in Russian and Helen Mirren in her first American film as a Russian. Of course, she's of Russian extraction and she looks like a sort of cool Russian chick from the eighties yeah. as does <laughs> the other woman who, uh, uh, the actress Natasha Schneider, I think her name was, who is now no longer with us, who plays the, the great, uh, one scene where she sits with Roy Scheider went in that, um, in that compartment, when the ship is slowing down from the outer space trip, they have to basically put these gigantic balloons up in space to slow down the the ship and to use the gravity of Jupiter to uh, slingshot it around. That's such a thrilling sequence. That's that's such a lovely moment too. Again, of just
1: watching these people who have no real connection to each other, kind of coming together and in that moment being a comfort to one another. It's it sort of reminded me of the Francis Sternhagen and Connor Connery relationship too. you know, Mm -hmm. just, he, he's so good at these little moments, building out relationships. And and the idea of doing a sequel in general, is a very cynical endeavor doing a sequel to maybe the greatest movie of all time is, (laughs) is unbelievably cynical. So to make a movie to to go the opposite direction and make something so lovely and so genial is just such a, so hopeful is, is, is such a, brilliant idea to me and it's just so it it's apparent throughout the movie that that's what the, the sort of message is and and i just that that's my out of all these movies my favorite scene is that scene
0: where, where they're holding each other in in that moment it's just such a lovely lovely thing and yeah well, I saw 2010 in 70 millimeter as soon as it came out as a teenager. And uh, my initial reaction was what a lot of people think, which was what the fuck was that? <laughs> That's not <laughs> as good as 2001. Like uh, there are nice things that happen in it, but uh, come on, what do you – doing making a sequel to 2001 over the course of time, I've warmed to this movie and I can accept it on its own terms, which is 2001 is a great movie that you, you got to see in 70 millimeter and you have to be, you know, have this full sort of immersive experience 2010 works on that level too, but where I really like it is when it's on TV on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was another one that I. It goes down easy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like Tubi is like the perfect place to discover 2010 because they have a beautiful, (laughs) beautiful high definition transfer there.
1: Yeah, and then and then you can jump into your uh, Uber Eats commercial for ninety seconds. Go grab go grab some more snacks and.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a that's a that's the way it always was. Uh, Tubi lets you off the hook because on commercial television the ad breaks are five minutes and up, whereas oh, yeah. on Tubi they're ninety seconds and or less.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of perfect, too, because you don't lose your thread. You can kind of take a minute to breathe, and then you go back. The, the five minutes, I, I don't miss that at all. I don't have cable anymore, and so I don't miss the five minutes where you're waiting and waiting. But one thing I want to shout out about this movie that I really loved, and, and I heard two separate stories about this. One person was in my mentions telling this story, and then my dad actually told me the story from when he saw it in theaters. They both had the same exact story. When you see the, the, the turnaround moment, which is another really lovely moment of Keir. Uh, I always get his name wrong. Kier D'Elia. D'Elia. Yeah. yeah. When, when he turns around and sees him, both this person who I mentioned and my dad both told me the same story about how the audience, when they saw this movie gasped seeing him because he looks exactly the same and there's no yeah. de-aging technology. Then that's just how he looks. It's, he, his face is a great special effect because he didn't age at all in the intervening
0: years. Mm-hmm. And he's still alive. Keir D'Elia is in his nineties, but he, you know, he's, he, he lived well past even 2010. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I want to uh, read you this very, very funny uh, quote from Hyams in an interview with Paul Rowlands, where he talked about uh, making 2010 is his, he was asked to do it because people thought of him as the sci-fi studio guy based on Outland and Capricorn One, and uh, he's a commercially viable filmmaker. Um, but he was at first worried about taking on the project because of the lineage. And he uh, highly respected Stanley Kubrick, and, and he wanted to do right by him. And he had figured out a way to make the movie. He had a working relationship already with Arthur C. Clarke. They had been passing notes back and forth on the adaption of the of Clark's novel uh, by a very early form of email, which Arthur C. Clark would later publish as sort of the production diary of the making of this movie. But what he really wanted was Stanley Kubrick's permission. So this is a quote from Hyams. He said, we set up a time to talk with Stanley Kubrick. I remember I was in my office and my secretary walked in and said, Stanley Kubrick is on the line. I jumped to my phone and literally stood up. I was standing the entire time I talked to him. I said, hello, Mr. Kubrick. And he immediately said, in Outland, how did you do that shot where... (laughs) (laughs) And he started asking me all these technical questions about photography, how I did this, why I did that, what lenses I used, what f-stop, and so on. About an hour and a half into the conversation, I said, listen, do you approve me doing a sequel to 2001? And before I could even finish the sentence, he said, oh yeah, fine, you'll be great for it. And then he (laughs) went on with his technical questions. (laughs) I I love that so so much. That but he, that's proof that Outland rules is that Stanley Kubrick wanted to know how he did it, and
1: and I love that because um, you know Kubrick always gets tagged with being like this. You know, you know you, you you come to him and he sits on high, and you have to like. And and I think a lot of people, for at least when I was growing up, I don't know if this is still true, but I do feel like people did confuse him for a while for being British because he lived so much of his life in England, but he's mm-hmm. actually just like a a New York City guy, <laughs> yeah. you know, we hear him talk. He has a little bit of that accent and yeah. he's, he, he seems like, you know, for as, as totemic as he is, every story you hear about him outside of, you know, when he's making the movies, he sounds like such a chill guy that you can just go talk to. And he's, he loves movies and he loves mm-hmm. talking about movies. And that's, I, I love that story. I had heard that. I, th- I think I had heard that somewhere before, but then you reminded me of it before we did the, did the show. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a fantastic story because he's like, I don't care if you do a sequel. I want to hear about your movie.
0: <laughs> yeah. He, he His only advice to Hyams was make it your movie. Do what you want to do. And he absolutely did that. Yeah. Um, and then another quote from Hyams when um, he was working on 2010 – He said, from the beginning, I said, I have to make a film that is so completely different in tone, in look, in sound, in everything, so that you can't honestly compare it to 2001 or compare me to Stanley Kubrick. Because if there's any comparison between me and Stanley Kubrick, it's unfair to me because he's one of the greatest filmmakers that ever lived. You know, so he was like, I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to try to compete. I'm going to use the story as a jump off point to tell my version of it. And it reminded me a little bit of the early days of Mission Impossible, where they would get a director to sort of tell the story. Um, I think that it's uh, would have been cool if we got a new 2001 movie every 10 or 15 years from a different filmmaker.
1: I agree with that. And I and I didn't look this up. Uh, I should have. But there were a few people responding to me on my because for whatever I was kinda of shocked by this. My twenty ten post went off a little bit. Yeah. Um, and uh, here I am calling it a post when I should be saying tweet. I don't I don't want to give in to the uh Elon
0: Yeah, never <laughs> never call it what he wants you to call yeah. it.
1: <laughs> but um but but there were people replying to me saying, Oh, you know, Tom Hanks was interested in doing I, I think it would have been was it three thousand and one. Yeah. And and I kinda of would love to see that, you know, like you said, this, this would be fun like every fifteen years see someone else's take on it. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe a, uh, a
0: James Gray type or something, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, here's another uh, key to enjoying, 2001, and knowing that it's a movie that was made for people who have never seen 2001, I don't see why you can't enjoy a movie that is influenced by 2001, like 2010, the way that I enjoy Brian De Palma's Mission to Mars, which is so clearly derivative of 2001 and yet so great. You know, it's a very underrated De Palma movie. A lot of people don't like it. I think it gets very close to what's so special about something like 2001. Oh yeah, yeah. I've I've always liked that. Even if it's populist and it's designed to be entertaining, and it you know, like the there's two sequences in 2010 that are beyond thrilling. The first is the aerobrake break scene that we talked about before. The second is that incredible spacewalk where the Russian cosmonaut Ilya Baskin and John Lithgow have to travel from the Leonov to the spinning Discovery because the Discovery is doing like a sort of vertical 360 spin and they have to go to the middle point. Haim said that he's afraid of heights and he threw all of his fear of heights into the design of that sequence. And when you see that scene in a movie theater, you feel like you're about to fall out of your chair. It's so scary. Oh yeah, even on my couch, you know, watching, you know, I'm laying. I, I have the
1: part of the I have part of the couch reclined. I'm laying backwards, and I'm like sitting up, and you know, yeah. when that's going on. And and just as an aside, I don't think I've ever seen John Lithgow be this working class. He always comes off as so theatrical to me, and mm-hmm. yeah, this is the most laid back I've ever seen him. It's one of my favorite performances of his. I just I'd never seen him like that. And but yeah, that that scene is tremendous. His breathing and everything, and.
0: Well, that's another great uh, indicator of the humanism of this movie is that uh, when they're heading over Jupiter to get into the discovery, Lithgow has a panic attack and has to be talked down by Ilya Baskin and, you know, don't look down, you know, just keep looking ahead and we're almost there. And he sort of shepherds him into being able to get from point A to point B. Then they go inside the discovery and that's, uh, they have to crawl to the, to the end of the spinning ship to get to the door, to get into the ship. I I guess they go to the center of gravity of the spinning ship and then they have to do a spacewalk up to the front of the ship to get in and it's spinning at 360 degrees. And that's another uh, vertiginous scene where you feel like you're going to (laughs) puke. He's so good at cutting,
1: you know, cutting the tension with humor, but not like a Marvel kind of way where, you know, all that just happened, but in a, in such a natural way of like, I I don't remember the exact verbiage, but there's, there's a very funny moment where he's uh, John Lithgow, you know, so something about, you know, that's easy for you to say, or you, or how many times have you done this? Or Elia Baskin's like, oh, oh, this is my first time. Like he, he makes it sound like he knows what he's
0: talking about. And he's <laughs> yeah. like, and then you find out that it's also his first time doing yeah. it. But then the tables are turned when they finally get inside the ship and, and they take off their helmets and realize that the air is breathable. Suddenly Elia Baskin realized that there's this smell of rotting meat, which might be a corpse and he suddenly has a huge panic attack and has to be talked down by Lithgow and he, Lithgow tells him oh some food must have spoiled in the galley before the ship uh, froze so that's all it is that you're smelling don't worry everything's going to be okay and i you know scene today that scene is uh, wonderful i love to see men helping other men get over problems yeah. <laughs> because Hyams is also an underrated dude's rock director with uh, busting and running scared and there's some dudes rock elements in this movie, especially the way the interaction between the Americans and the Soviets uh, where, you know, it's, it's, it's that sort of um, pie in the sky idea of uh, cooperation between superpowers at a time where we all thought we were going to die any minute now.
1: It, it, it really is lovely. And it's, yeah, it, I, I, like, like I was saying before, this could have just been them you know working together sitting around on a space station for three hours and i would have been equally happy with that because their relationships feel so natural and it's just it, it's such a fun light-hearted movie but also those moments of tension really do like just he's so good at that he and that's why he's so good at the uh, thrillers he went on to do.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, and also Roy Scheider, the great Roy Scheider as Dr. Floyd. Uh, oh, again, yeah. with high uh, Haim's sort of blue-collar elements, because Scheider is such a great sort of blue-collar persona in movies. And it's great that he's like this great scientific doctor, but he speaks in an everyman kind of way. And we have those wonderful glimpses of his life in California with his <laughs> dolphins swimming <laughs> around in the pool <laughs> and his I, uh, lovely wife. <laughs>
1: I was saying that the other day that I, you know, as much as, you know, I love the whole space aspect, I, there's part of me that was like, man, you have this beautiful hot wife, you know, it's Madeline Smith. She's gorgeous, you know, and you you have a living room with a dolphin aquarium in the living room. Like, I, you know, you get to go down to the beach and work on your laptop every day. You know, this is the life I, you know, I wouldn't screw going to space. I'm staying here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that stuff is just so great. I, I love, um, uh, I love how '80s their science fiction visions are in this movie, but yeah, yeah. you know, like the 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 uh, Leonov, the lighting on the Soviet spaceship looks like a Moscow disco sometimes too. <laughs> It's just so great. Um, And also uh, another little fun fact in terms of the production design is in that scene that you mentioned earlier where Scheider takes a look at his boy who's asleep just before he heads off to space. uh, On the kid's wall is a poster for Beijing 2008. It's like the Olympics. Beijing didn't get the rights to the 2008 Olympics until, drum roll, (laughs) 2001. So what did Peter Hyams know? (laughs) And when did he know it? (laughs) Another fun fact uh, is uh, we forgot to mention how good Bob Balaban is in this movie as Dr. Chandra, a role written for Ben Kingsley, but they wound up getting Bob Balaban. Wow. But, But there's a scene where he's talking to the Sal 9000 computer, and the voice of the computer is Candace Bergen. Who was the star of the first film that Peter Hyams wrote, which was called TR Basket. I mentioned that earlier.
1: I, I love those scenes of him talking to the computers and the the there's that scene where he finally reconnects with How nine thousand and that that's another very lovely moment, you know, and mm-hmm. that's between a man
0: and a computer. They're, I just yeah. Mm-hmm really good stuff there and a redemption arc for Hal like the, the movie yeah. explains that Hal went crazy because he got orders that he couldn't compute and uh, the they have to basically get Hal to help them with a booster rocket to get away from Jupiter before it get, becomes a black hole Sun uh, and he basically has to tell Hal that you know you have to stay behind and Hal accepts it because he was honest with him. It sort of suggests that the reason, like, it's an acceptable excuse for why Hal went crazy it was because it all has to make sense. And if what they're telling him makes sense, then he agrees with it, even though it makes them both very sad. And, uh, you know, it's just the, these little lovely touches in the movie. 2010, even if it doesn't live up to the level of 2001, it doesn't take away from it either. You can watch 2001 right after watching 2010 and not even think about 2010. That's another thing that I think is great about this movie, is it stands on its own two feet. It doesn't take away from the original film. I totally agree with that. I,
1: I saw some people saying that, you know, the the Hal Redemption sort of takes away from the mystique of his of his heel turn in the original, and I don't agree with that at all. I think that they, they almost feel like two separate movies. Like, they this is a direct sequel to the first one, but it does feel, they feel like, Completely separate movies, and I don't think one takes away from the other whatsoever.
0: Yeah, I I don't think it adds to your understanding of two thousand and one, but most importantly, it doesn't take away from your understanding. Exactly, you're not going to be watching two thousand and one and go, "Oh yeah, remember Bob Balaban invented (laughs) Al? Like it, it won't occur to you,
1: right? And (laughs) and I think he he did exactly what Kubrick told him to do: was make it your own. It, It feels completely of a piece with itself, but but it does work too. If if you wanted to watch them together. They work really well together, I think. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's 2010 feels to me like one of the first legacy sequels. uh, Yeah. But today's legacy sequels kind of redo the first movie, whereas this movie is its own thing. Exactly, yeah. Quickly, we should also mention Time Cop, which is not on the level of any of these movies. Uh, It's more of a work for hire for Hyams. At the same time, it's so fun. It's so entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Filmed in Canada. Uh, that's why there are so many Canadian actors in the movie. I know you're a big fan of this film. This film also has fantastic action in it.
1: Oh yeah, I think it's up there among G- uh, John Claude Van Damme's best. I think Himes has, has claimed his two of his best movies with this in Sudden Death, and mm-hmm. and, it, and it's cool that his son would go on to, you know, give him two of his best movies with the Universal Soldier sequels. But um. Yeah, which this,
0: which Peter Hyams was the cinematographer on?
1: I'm not sure if he did Day of Reckoning, but he definitely did Regeneration. Which, but both of those, uh, I don't know. You know how many people have seen those? Especially like the those are sort of like the uh, the high watermarks marks of DTV action. And it's funny when people hear like, wait, there were more Universal Soldier movies, and it's <laughs> like, yeah, not only that, but they're great. <laughs> just yeah. just don't ever. I always tell people don't watch the second with um with uh. WCW wrestler Bill Goldberg and uh, <laughs> Michael Jai White. I like uh, the first
0: one. I, yeah, I the, f- the first one's fine. It's the first the, one I, It's my favorite yeah. Roland Emmerich film.
1: <laughs> oh me too. I, I, I really enjoy the first one. I think they're great as a trilogy. So I always tell people watch the first one, then watch Regeneration and Day of Reckoning. Skip the return and don't even bother with the TV movies that are they're not canonical. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Time Cop is such a blast. And I've always liked Jean-Claude Van Damme. I get why people think that he's not a very good actor. I think his early stuff. It's tough to make the claim. I think he was always a great physical actor. He does a lot of good stuff with his eyes, but mm-hmm. he's pretty terrific in this movie. And I think he's aged in, in his DTV years into an actually genuinely very good actor. And you see signs of that here. I I think he's pretty terrific here, but you're not here, you know, to see him act and and um one one thing that I think the best directors of john claude get is how hot he is for you know especially to a female lens and i i posted someone's letterboxd review in my own little twitter thread i took a screenshot because it's such a great a uh, it's such a great um uh little bit of writing uh, it, he he's maybe the only action star ever who had a, had the had women in mind mm-hmm. in terms of his image and and I think that you get that here you know this is a very sexy movie it's
0: uh, yeah he's filmed yeah. like a love object in this film he, oh
1: yeah definitely and I think the, uh you know you don't get too much of verb- her you know he and Mia Sara are a very hot couple and everything and yeah. but, but
0: you get you get to see his ass in yeah. the love scene, too.
1: Yeah, and he, you know, he there's a very iconic one of the more iconic split shots of you know him oh. doing the splits to avoid getting
0: electrocuted. That is a fantastic scene, and David Letterman did a wonderful out of nowhere reference to it <laughs> <laughs> that should be a meme. <laughs> the
1: one thing that always because I've seen Time Cop so many times, I, I always lament that Ron Silver wasn't like everywhere because he's such a great. Great actor, and he gives such a terrific villain performance in this movie. He's so smarmy, so sleazy, mm-hmm. and he's just—he's so natural. I r- really enjoy Ron Silver
0: in this. Well, you know what it was I? Uh, what I was thinking because I love Ron Silver too. Ron Silver, of course, was a died-in-the-wool conservative crank before yeah. it was fashionable. <laughs> um, but I think Ron Silver is different than uh, a lot of the other actors of his ilk, the, the James Woods types who have now marginalized themselves as movie stars because they. They didn't – they 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 prioritized their politics over good work and they stopped working with Hollywood liberals and stuff. So, but Ron Silver didn't have that problem. He would – he might have been a crank, but, you know, he went where the good parts were. His character in Time Cop seems like an evil Republican, but that's fine, you know. <laughs> the other thing that's aged so well about Time Cop is that um, it's really about how money is the most important thing in politics. And, you know, now you don't have to go back to the Civil War <laughs> – to get gold (laughs) to finance your campaign when you change the future. Uh, Now you can get the Koch brothers to uh, give you the $500 million for your political campaign. But you know, it's a convoluted plot. It doesn't totally hang together. One thing I don't quite understand in time cop is how they get back (laughs) because they get in a car that goes (laughs) into a wall to send them into the past, but then they just come back in the car, but you don't see how they got back into the car. It doesn't matter because this is a pulpy uh piece of entertainment.
1: I, I wanna read very quickly that because I, I was very I've always been very confused about the time mechanics in this movie. And one of my uh Twitter buddies uh Matt Lynch has a very funny uh, little little blurb on Letterboxd here. He says, largely abandons the Einstein-Rosenbridge theory of time travel in favor of the less widely known but still promising Van Damme split.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I've said this on Twitter too, is that um, the trailer department at Universal Pictures, I was pretty sure that they had a Jean-Claude Van Damme unit. whose job it was, was to make Jean-Claude Van Damme trailers because all the movies that Van Damme made for Universal in the 90s, including Hard Target and Sudden Death and Time Cop had terrific trailers where you definitely had to go and see this movie after watching the ad. Like I raced out to see Time Cop because the trailer was so exciting and it, it's funny and, too. and they play in fact I think the splits in the trailer for time cop are more impressive than they are in the film
1: <laughs> oh yeah 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 <laughs>
0: The genie is already out of the bottle. The technology is there. Now, one man. You ever hear the name Aaron McComb? Is about to take the ultimate power trip. He's gonna be president. You don't need the press. You don't need endorsements. You don't even need the truth. You need money. But to enforce the laws of time. Are we still together in 10 years? Am I dead? (laughs) One man is determined to stop him. I cannot go back to save her. This scumbag is not going back to steal money. Stay here, Walker. my future, you're dead. (laughs) I think you planned too far ahead. Jean-Claude Van Damme.
1: I'm glad people have sort of come around on I mean, I don't know if it's just, you know, my little circle of people, but I'm glad people have come around on Jean-Claude Van Damme because I feel like for a long time this was maybe considered his high water mark and not much else is very good, but but I don't know. I think he's worth digging into. Although I, I think we were saying this off off mic, but I wouldn't wouldn't dig too deep into Peter Heim's last feature, which starred Jean-Claude Van Damme Enemies Closer. Um, unless you're a very dyed-in-the-wool fan, that
0: movie yeah.
1: isn't isn't worth seeking out. But I don't know. I, I'm a big Jean-Claude Van Damme fan.
0: <laughs> yeah, Van Damme's trying really hard to be like uh, Travolta in... Broken Arrow, just like this big weirdo, bad guy, flamboyant. And, and yeah. you know, a little of it goes a long way, though. Um, and it was filmed in Bulgaria, standing in for <laughs> the <laughs> Quebec or wherever the movie's BC, wherever it's supposed to take place. Um, also, a shout out to uh, another Heim's movie that I may reserve to do a whole episode on called Narrow Margin. Another example of just what a good uh, genre filmmaker Hyams yeah. was. That's a great film with a great cast.
1: And, and I want to shout out before we do a, do wrap up that, uh, just very briefly. Cause I mentioned it earlier. Sudden death is such a great movie features, uh, my, my hometown Pittsburgh penguins. Um, I, I know, I know you're up in Canada. I know that they're, they're not, I know Sidney Crosby's not very well liked around the hockey sphere, but, uh, yeah. but, but, uh, yeah, this, this, this was right after their, uh, run in the 90s with Lemieux and everything and it's just Mm -hmm. so fun it it, it was always so fun to see Pittsburgh on screen as a kid because we didn't get it too much Uh, lately we have been because we give people a lot of good tax breaks when they film here Dark Knight Rises was shot predominantly here and everything but but for the longest time all we could really lay claim to was Silence of the Lambs which you don't notice it too much but Sudden Death is like 100% a Pittsburgh movie so it was like That movie's like a religion here, and I, I love when he fights Iceberg
0: the Penguin in the kitchen. Yeah. It's such a good fight. <laughs> yeah, that that might actually be a better kitchen fight than the one in Outland, and that's saying I think, something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, yeah. Uh, sudden death is maybe one one of the best, if not the best, of the Die Hard ripoffs. It, it, oh yeah, it, it, <laughs> but it's another example of just how Hyams is just such a great. Uh, craftsman, you know, he understood the assignment is uh, a way that we describe these people now. And and speaking of good villain performances like Ron Silver, Powers
1: Booth is excellent
0: in Sudden Death. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and Sudden Death also has to explain why uh, Jean-Claude is uh, French. So he's from Quebec. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's hockey. Of course he's from Quebec.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Powers Booth has maybe one of my favorite lines in any action movie when he goes, Oh, Detective Hallmark. Well, I see they sent their very best. (laughs)
0: Well, Brandon, before we go, I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the vulture stunt awards, because you're fighting the good fight. And I've always argued that there should be two more Academy categories. One should be for best one scene performance and one should be best stunt work.
1: I, yeah. So I agree with that completely. And I would just add maybe best casting too. I think that that's an, but, um, but yeah, stunt work, you know, obviously I love action. It means a lot to me and, and, so for Vulture, um, I, I was reached out to, I guess it would have been the end of 2022-ish, um, Bilga Abiri reached out to me and said, hey, we're, you know, Vulture's planning on doing a stunt awards, you know, Oscars aren't doing it, we think, you know, we want to kind of highlight stunts, and, you know, here's here's how we're trying to do it, would you want to lead it for us? And I was, like, kind of blown away, I was like, yeah, definitely. So the last two years now, we we started it in 2023, it would have been was the first one. And then this year will be the second annual um, stunt awards. Uh, Basically, through a lot of hard work, months and months of work each year, it's it's kind of tedious work, but it's very fulfilling is just me spending a lot of time cold emailing anyone in the action industry from like, you know, Directors who I'm not going to name because there are some people who have participated who have chosen to remain anonymous to like stunt stunt pr- professionals who no one's ever heard of to critics in between and everything. Just anyone that, you know, I've I've sent out hundreds and hundreds of emails over the last two years of just like, hey, this is what we're doing. Would you like to be part of our voting body? The first year was very funny because. No one knew what the hell I was asking for. So it was like, wait, you want me to do what? You want me to, what's this about? You know, so the first year we had a, a smaller voting body. We had a, you know, very small nominating body that participated. And then we had maybe about a hundred people vote on the final ballot at the end of the day, uh, a little under that. And yeah, just awarding the best stunts in action. But it was such a huge success that this year we're already blowing past, you know, I'm having people vote that I would have never dreamed of. It's it's crazy. And it's just, it's so fun. It's so fulfilling to be able to do this and just award the best stunts in movies. And last year, Scott Adkins won Stunt Performer of the Year, and it was so fun to be able to highlight him because I feel like my body of work in writing the last however many years I've been doing this feels like it's been leading to a huge publication like Vulture doing a massive profile on Scott Adkins. So I feel very very i didn't get to write that profile but i'm very happy to have been a part of that happening because that i I feel like i could have retired from writing after that but yeah yeah, it's been very fun and the only update i have in terms of an oscar is i interviewed chad stahelski for john wick four last year Mm -hmm. and he told me that he and a few other people are in active discussions with the academy and they have been for a few years now and it's looking like a could be happening within the next couple of years. So fingers crossed.
0: <laughs> yeah. I noticed they retired those uh, fan awards that they tried to start up a couple of years <laughs> <Yeah>. ago.
1: <laughs> I think because yeah, uh, Zack Snyder's justice league won,
0: and they were like, well, maybe I, well, I well unfortunately they seem really- to be, they seem to be award categories designed to give Marvel something. And then Zack <laughs> Snyder won both of them <laughs> yeah. for two yeah. different movies. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's funny because I do, uh, I, I'm not a fan of his, completely i kind of like his vibe more than i like his movies but i mm-hmm. do really love his justice league cut which shocked the hell out of me so i was yeah. happy to see that happen for
0: him <laughs> well brandon where can people find you on twitter and places like that
1: uh on twitter under my name i have a confusing last name so i'm sure you know that you'll see it here in the in the description and if you just type that in you'll see me on twitter that's where i am predominantly and just writing wherever whoever will have me but yeah right now uh, firmly entrenched in the stunt stuff. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. We we just announced the nominations um, a couple of weeks ago. And so we're in final voting right now. And then I think all of that will be announced in March. And the only other thing I want to kind of shout out, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about it, but the stunt awards are going to, th- there's going to be a much bigger action component with the stunt awards this year. There's going to be way more features all sort of intertwined with this. So it, I'm very excited about that. It feels like a whole big thing that Vulture doing. And I, I hope it continues every year because it's been very fun. So yeah,
0: that's where you can find me and keep a lookout for that in March. Well, you're doing heroic work. I, I love to see this kind of uh, groundswell for uh, the much maligned uh, stunt performers category. It, it, it's long overdue that they recognize their work. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me. This was such a blast. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome back anytime. time. And uh, I'm so proud that I got you uh, to get obsessed with Peter Hyams because it was oh, contagious. Yeah. Your enthusiasm <laughs> for Outland was so contagious that I've in the last week and a half, I've watched like seven Peter Hyams movies.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that you asked me to do this because I it, it put me on a fast track to watch Capricorn 1 in 2010 and rewatch Time Cop. and now I'm going to just be kind of falling down the rabbit hole i'm gonna watch uh the relic uh yeah and i'm i'm excited to to watch some more that i haven't seen
0: yeah i mean like um I, I've never had an excuse to watch the Presidio until now, so I'll have to check that out,
1: too. Yeah, I'm interested in that one. That one seems to be one of the ones that people are a little a little down on, but who knows? Maybe maybe we'll both love it.
0: Well, that was that weird period where they were trying to make Mark Harmon into a movie star. Yeah. <laughs> People's uh, sexiest man at, yeah. at one point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, for, a, for a minute there, it looked like he might replace Don Johnson as Sonny Crockett on Miami Vice during a contract dispute oh wow (laughs) that would have been so weird well brandon thank you so much for joining me come on back anytime yeah thank you so much for having me this was a blast we'll have another episode of junk filter in the next few days patrons of this podcast help to make junk filter possible to become a patron and to receive access to bonus shows as well as to support the show directly please go to patreon.com junk filter And please follow us on Twitter at Junk Filter Pod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you for listening. Поставьте ноги вместе. Выполняем поочередные движения плечами вверх, приседая и выпрямляясь. И вниз. Вверх. Вниз. Вверх, вниз Вверх, вниз Вверх